everyone. Welcome to the Taurus Jack Sunday special. Um, this is our weekly rundown of some of the stories of the week, some of the uh, things that passed that just caught our interest and some of the things that we wish hadn't caught our interest, but we have to talk about anyway. Um, as usual, if you can come along to these, if you are a subscriber of patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, uh, this is, you know, this is our 37th of them. So that just shows you how long we've been in bloody lockdown that we're doing these <laughs> online, these virtual shows. Um, but we do always enjoy it. And it's always great to get a bit of feedback from our supporters and listeners. Um, I am joined by my the co-host of the Echo Chamber podcast, Martin McMahon. Um, and I do really genuinely wish uh, we weren't just always just me and you together, Martin. When this ship goes down. Uh, Tony, you've no idea how sick I am of your face. You've just <laughs> no idea. It's gotten. Uh, uh, we're also delighted to be joined by Vicky Conway from Police Podcast. Vicky, how are you keeping? Not too bad, not too bad. Term has been kicking my ass, so it's coming to an end now, so I shall reappear in, cool. in this setting. Yeah, well, no, there's some stuff in the pipeline, and, and it's good to see you back. Um, and, and I know, what have you got, about a week and a half left? Uh, it's six, five days. Yeah, hey. days. 2 p.m. Friday, I'm like, party zone. <laughs> um. Anyway, look, we are also joined by Emma D'Souza. Emma, as if listeners should know, if you're listening to us, you're pretty informed. She was one half of the of the uh, herself and her husband successfully went against the British state in terms of Irish identity, and it's not just that she won in court, which helped people keep their identity going forward. Following on from that, she is a human rights activist. She's also a big believer in the Good Friday Agreement. She's also part of, um, she's worked with the President's Council of Ireland as well. So, Emma, I, I wish we were coming on to chat under better circumstances, but obviously, you know, events have been different over the last number of days. But you have been very clear um, whether people have read your article in the Irish Times or whether they are following you on social media that this isn't 1972. This is this isn't that right. This, but but do you want to just give us a flavour of what you believe actually is happening? Well, thank you very much for having me this afternoon. It's delightful to be with you all here. Um, and as you say, I do wish it was under better circumstances and we had something perhaps a little bit more positive to talk about. But um, I will try and still hold an optimistic tone um, as best I can with something that's so difficult to uh, deal with. It's been very difficult to watch these scenes of violence over the past several days, especially considering how young some of the riders have been with children as young as 12 involved. And really, it's been also difficult to see how that's been painted in terms of a narrative um, about Northern Ireland in terms of externally. We see it in the Republic of Ireland, but also in England and elsewhere, where there is manoeuvring now to paint this as solely opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a simplistic narrative that really only serves to further the political aims of unionism who have been trying to undermine the Northern Ireland Protocol. And whilst it is extraordinarily sad and difficult to see young people caught up in such violent scenes, it actually serves as a reminder of how fragile the peace process is in Northern Ireland and that there are many failures that haven't really been properly addressed over the past two decades. You know, we're 23 years on, we're celebrating the signing of the Good Friday Agreement yesterday. Um, but many of the issues in terms of opportunities for working class communities, integrated education, and the influence the paramilitary organizations still have, these are not being properly addressed. So it's a very complex picture that a lot of people are maneuvering to claim it's X, Y, or Z. 
but it's really not that easy to um, to pinpoint what it is. I think that's a crucial point here. I mean, we spoke to uh, Councillor Brian Smith from the Green Party, and the first thing he did was to uh, told us was to, to basically stick our hot takes where the sun doesn't shine, and um, and and he was he was spot on because you know it's easy for uh, us to have this us again that create that othering part, and then to have that agenda and this perception. Uh, and I've spoken to other people who've said, look, it is a minority. It's a small group. Unfortunately, there's inequality at sta- at Arsia. There's people who don't see any sort of, you know, social mobility, don't feel they feel left behind. They feel di- unrepresented as well. So, you know, all of that plays into it. But it's much easier just to say loyalist versus nationalist and sectarianism. And um, this is what you ha- this is what happens because Claire Byrne had a had a conversation on on the telly and we all panicked. That's it. I mean, the reality is, is there's always been groups within Northern Ireland who have opposed the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. The problem is these groups have felt emboldened by a lot of the dangerous rhetoric what we've heard over the past few months from political unionist representatives. And really what these violent scenes demonstrate is not a failure of the peace process, but a failure of leadership. Mm-hmm. And we've yet to see really any proper accountability uh, in terms of from unionist leaders, in terms of what hand they had in this escalating to where it is. You know, we saw that unionist leaders were calling for the resignation of the chief constable three days before the first riot. And so we had three days of rhetoric around undermining the PSNI. And that coalesced with months of dangerous rhetoric around the Northern Ireland Protocol. So really, we're still missing that leadership that's needed in terms of trying to get this under control. And um, when we talk about labeling and relabeling, I had a piece in the Irish Times this week where I actually described the people of Northern Ireland as the perpetual boogeyman du jour, where we're labeled and relabeled to suit whichever political agenda. And I see that quite a lot in terms of, you know, whenever I'm doing work around extending presidential voting rights to Northern Ireland, we all morph into Sinn Féin voters that can't possibly be allowed to have a right to vote because of the fear of who we might vote for. When in reality, there's over 830,000 Irish passport holders in the North, but 200,000 vote for Sinn Féin. So it really is not based on facts, but based on misperceptions. And then also when we saw last year, the Green Party having a say in the program for government, we morphed all then into British citizens who couldn't possibly have any say in Irish affairs. So it does get labelled and relabeled to suit these agendas. And there will be a concern now that these scenes this week will be used, not just by unionists to try to further undermine the Northern Ireland Protocol, but also by those in the Republic of Ireland who maybe don't want to have a conversation about constitutional change. Can I come in on um, two points there? I mean, you make the point there about um, Arlene Foster calling for the resignation of the chief constable. And like, I don't know if, if people in the South realise this, but it works differently in the North. So in the South, it's the Minister for Justice and the government that hires and fires the commissioner. That's not the case in the North. It's not Arlene Foster's job. It's the policing board's job. So it was not Arlene Foster's job to even comment on that. She's stepping into a space that is completely volatile. Like, you know, making that statement was entirely incendiary. And I think, like, politically so irresponsible, um, given that it's not her job. And it was always going to fuel fire. And the other thing, like, with that rhetoric as well is, like, 
And I'm not, obviously I'm not condoning any violence, but the only thing we seem to see at the moment is condemnation of the violence and none of that political accountability. Like this was entirely predictable. There's been a predictable, I mean, you you take all of this together, issues with policing, Brexit, COVID, the failures to address things in the past, this was always going to happen. You know, I have friends in Belfast telling me that the bonfires for the 11th of July are already 20 foot tall in their area. That wouldn't usually happen till June. You know, it's going to be a tough summer and, and people are disenfranchised and disempowered. And this is this was entirely preventable. I don't know if you'd agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I certainly would agree that um where we are is something that many of us have seen coming for a long time. And uh, I would echo that concern about what's going to be a very difficult summer um, for us here, especially with the bonfires. Um, it's not often reported as widely as it should be, but you know the bonfires here are still very contentious um, around the 12th, especially because some of them still do burn Irish flags. And it's a difficult time as an Irish citizen in the North uh, when you see your national flag being burned on, bon- on bonfires. So, Personally, I, I think that there needs to be um, a review of how these celebrations are taking place uh, because my husband's American, as everyone will know, and I have his perspective coming into it. And he's just like, how is this tolerated? How is this OK? It would never be tolerated anywhere else. You know, it's hate crime. And the fact that people have to leave their homes and the fire brigade are more focused on uh, putting water on the houses to stop them catching fire than putting out the fire is uh, certainly something that is a whole other topic to get into that um, is going to be, I think, worse this year than it has been. This is the centenary year as well. So it is, um, it's interesting to see how unionism is in many ways not trying to calm or, you know, take this into a better space because it doesn't necessarily paint a, a great picture of Northern Ireland you know, if you're going to be celebrating 100 years and we have children on the streets with petrol bombs, it's hardly a celebration. So it's an interesting tactic that they're using at the moment. And I think another perspective to bring into that is we do have the assembly elections here next May. And unionism has lost already its majority in Westminster, its majority in Stormont. There is concern that they're going to lose more seats at the next election. So in one way, there might be a degree of electioneering around this rhetoric mm. and the positioning that they're making tried and tested tactics of you know putting it against we vote us to stop Sinn Féin from getting in we're already seeing that happen so I think there's a degree of that too. Is there an element too that because the demographic is shifting um, the people that are being mobilized out on the streets to do this they, they're not going to vote in the first place it's uh, you know it, it doesn't add any votes um, so it's kind of a futile exercise to be doing this other than it's it's weakening the whole position of stability in the north. It is weakening the position or it's trying to give the impression that uh, Northern Ireland is, is more uh, volatile than it actually is. You know, these are very small, violent groups um, that have been on the streets. In reality, the majority of the people of Northern Ireland have already embedded for themselves the meaning of true reconciliation. And we've seen massive shifts over the past two decades in terms of identity as well, with the majority of people now, according to the Life and Time survey, identifying as neither nationalist or unionist. Yet you would think from anywhere else, any commentary from outside of Northern Ireland, that we we're all just still unionists and nationalists who are constantly at each other. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have now a whole new generation that has grown up under the Good Friday Agreement 
um, you know, these young people on the streets uh, causing violence are not representative of all young people in Northern Ireland, but really representative of a very small group who are being influenced by those with more nefarious means, which is, is really difficult to witness. So I think there does have to be a little bit of perspective here as well in terms of the demographic shifts that can't be stopped. That's something that is a natural progression in the peace process that people are starting to move forward. And if you want to see reconciliation, it really is everywhere around Northern Ireland. You know, you're looking at the East Belfast schools that are voting to become integrated schools in Ballymena there recently as well, or the East Belfast GAA club. So there is a lot of reconciliation here if people only looked for it. I think it's important that we put that perspective on things. Um, I think it's very cru it's crucial that, especially um, when it's so easy for us to to how quickly we fell into the rhetoric and the reportage of of the past as well. You know, calls for calm on both sides, clashes reported. You know, uh, scenes of and it, it it literally was like reading a newspaper from twenty five years ago. To, you know, it's it was like picking that up and hearing the reportage and the calls and. The, and I think Vicky make a really important point that there's a lot of calls for calm, not not many uh, not many calls for accountability. Um, yeah, but it's not just accountability; it's about that preventative work. Like the response to this is always a policing response, rather than like where is the work going on on the ground with the communities with these young kids? Like what is being done to prevent them engaging with this? Um, yeah. That, that that and that like that needs to start now um like and it needs to always be happening because otherwise it's going to be another awful year and the people of the north don't deserve that yeah i agree with that actually in terms of there needs to be renewed attention on how to you know invest in these communities but there also needs to be honesty in terms of leadership i think that's what we're yeah. lacking right now is there's a lack of honesty about what does the northern Ireland protocol mean what's actually happening and I think that that's what um, unionist leaders really should be doing is being honest with their base um, and those who they claim to represent in terms of trying to address their concerns in a way that is constructive. And we haven't seen that happen yet. I actually was really struck on, um, I think it was Wednesday night, which was the worst night of violence so far, where the bus was hijacked and burned out. And the First Minister, Arlene Foster, in her statement condemning those who she said were, you know, this was attempted murder, um, in the same breath said that they were taken away from the real lawbreakers of Sinn Féin. And I, you know, this was a, a total failure to properly condemn those who are are doing, obviously breaking the law um, in terms of, of risking people's lives and burning out uh, buses. And to have made such a comment, uh, it really struck me as something similar to when Donald Trump failed to actually condemn wholly his supporters when they attacked Capitol Hill the difference is there were repercussions for Donald Trump's failure to properly condemn his supporters. There won't be repercussions for Arlene Foster, who kept that statement up and didn't remove it nor clarify it. And also yesterday, with it being the 23rd anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, it was remarkable that the First Minister passed no comment on that anniversary. So when I look at the progress or lack of progress over the last two decades in Northern Ireland, in terms of the failure to embed many of the rights-based provisions of the Good Friday Agreement, I look to the leadership and I wonder if maybe perhaps because we have people in positions of power who didn't support the agreement, whether that might be a factor in why we haven't got where we should be in these last two decades.
I, uh, I think there's a, a really real uh, succinct part there, but it's also one of those things I'm constantly reminded where people point to the Irish constitution and say, cherish all the children equally in a rights-based society. And we never got there either. So, so we've, we, we, no, we, but I do feel sometimes like, like certain achievements were like, from my perspective, real achievements have been made around policing. And that's, you know, when the assembly was stalled and not sitting, like they really allowed that to slip backwards and we're seeing real regression in policing in the north and its commitment to human rights and i just find that so frustrating and depressing because they really had achieved you know i don't know of any police service that had achieved the kind of change and reformation and human rights based approach that we'd seen with the psni and it really has slipped backwards and it's it's frustrating because that was you know that was because politicians took their foot off the gas and allowed the policing board to not sit for such a long time yeah, absolutely. I think now the takeaway from these this past week has to be redoubling our efforts um, in terms of pushing forward for the peace process and, and reconciliation. And looking back to the pages of the Good Friday Agreement, I was sharing the Good Friday Agreement on my social media yesterday and a desperate plea to ask more people to please read the document. It's only 30 odd pages and, you know, it takes like half an hour to read over your lunch break with a cup of tea. So and it's so important. Um, and I think that um, I would actually love to see the, the agreement being placed more further into our education system, North and South, because I think there's a real lack of focus on what was achieved in 1998. We're only two decades on and people are already forgetting about how momentous that was and how important it is to keep working on that agreement because it is a work in progress in terms of healing the divisions of the past, not just between the people of Northern Ireland, but between North and South as well. So. We really need to see renewed attention to that document. Right. I um, There's a lot, and I'm, I'm glad we had this conversation today, but I am going to have to move us on um, because we've a bit to get to. Um, so thanks so much, Emma. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, and I hope everybody is listening and understands that, you know, let's not fall into the very quick um easy tropes that 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 have resurfaced so quickly and so we so so comfortably we've slipped into them so comfortably that's what worried me so 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 much um i, I am going to move us on um if i could ask mo can i ask you to unmute your your mic if you don't mind hi tony how are you uh, now folks if you're a long-time listener you this is the second time uh mo, mo kamal is a is a pediatrician in in temple street and he has been part of the fast track citizenship campaign for our healthcare workers frontline workers and people who are basically dedicating themselves and helping us through this pandemic and looking for the sort of things that we've already seen across europe um how they their their nationality was was uh normalized shall we put it um mo do you want to give us a quick idea on how things have gone since we last spoke uh hi tony thank you for taking me today uh i don't think so they have moved much since we talked about like uh, three months ago mm-hmm. they are at very slow pace recently uh they introduced a new temporary system where they are, are like uh, giving uh, passport and citizenship to the candidates who have been successful like uh a virtual ceremony but it only processed nearly like 1200 applications and there are 83000 applications are still pending so i don't think so we haven't moved, moved much since uh, like 3 months ago and and, and i just saw that today 83000 applications that have 83 yeah it's in the journal uh, today yeah 83000 but, but we managed to have a virtual um 
ceremony for 1300 and we and i know there was a lot of statements though made by for example the the minister for for justice uh, helen McEntee made statements in support of the of of the calls of what you guys were, uh, were were campaigning for how have you found the like is it is is this a case that uh, i don't do I, I don't think so i think he's just playing with the words that uh putting us at the saying we are the frontline workers and she supports us and uh she appreciates our uh, involvement in the in this pandemic but in terms of doing something uh valuable for us i don't think so she hasn't done anything at all like for the last four months since i'm talking about these things so yeah yeah no i i see i, I i've seen that and we have we have got a history of um press you know doing press releases and, and making and covering things off and then at the end of it not not passing the legislation that's required what 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 is required as far as you're concerned is it just we need to speed up the process or we need to ju- are we are we need to um put more public pressure uh i think we tried everything with the public pressure i think uh, they are just too stubborn to do anything for us uh it's simple and straightforward thing like in every other country they process the naturalization application within one year at the maximum like in in germany they do it within four months and in the uk maximum one year but in ireland there's no specific timeline like when they're gonna process these applications people are waiting like for for four years like it's like a new norm for them like to wait for four years and in the meanwhile for healthcare worker it means a lot because our career progression is at health uh, because we cannot apply for training if we don't have the passport. Yeah, so it I, means I, I, a lot for us. But it, like, at the same time, there it's nothing, nothing happening. I, I don't mean to cut in, but I do think that's a crucial point. That there's also a, a separate campaign of, of to allow you to train, to allow you further your career. Because when when uh, when opportunities come on to actually upskill and 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 continue on your on your in your education. You're you're kind of denied that because your citizenship isn't 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 resolved, so you're left out of that loop, and that that seems to me like a a, a, a big a big injustice on top of injustice. No, exactly, exactly, no doubt about that. For the training issue, I met the uh, representative from the college uh, from RCPI in July, and uh, since then they have not offered a single uh, meeting. And they haven't done anything at all like since then. It only needs a small little legislation where they can remove the EU law and we can easily access to the training, which is at the end will be beneficial not just for us, but for the people of Ireland because the waiting list is like literally it's like more than 60,000 or maybe more people are still waiting to get an appointment. It will help eventually the health system but nobody's trying to do anything at all like and uh, i'm literally i'm so tired of speaking and I'm, it takes so much time to speak about these things and i'm so frustrated at this stage that uh and disappointed at the same time as well like this is this they're not gonna solve it they, they don't want to solve it at all i think we've learned that over the years that the where particularly where health is concerned they're not going to take the the solutions that are right there in front of their faces to, to address whatever crisis we have. And we've many crises in the health service, and a lot of them are down to staffing levels. And we're looking at a period after this COVID where the Irish healthcare workers are going to just leave en masse. 
and go elsewhere. And we really need to get something else in place so that we can get as many healthcare workers into the system as quickly as we can. I, I do feel for you. I, I understand, but I think it's it, this is just more of a continuation of what's been going on in our health service forever. That's true. That there's no doubt about that. Like Ireland had a big crisis uh, of doctors and nurses back in 2011, and they went to Pakistan and Sudan and India, and they recruited doctors from there. But when they have arrived there and they fill all those gaps and doing a service job for the health system to keep it going. But Ireland refused to do anything for those healthcare workers. They are so frustrated at this level. I know many people, like nearly 100, like they are directly uh, in, in my department, like where I'm working in pediatrics, and I know them directly. And they have moved like only recently because they, they, don't, they don't see any opportunity here. As a doctor, I think career progression is the most important thing. I don't think so. People just need an Irish passport uh, because they have the passport, Pakistani passport, which is good enough. They can travel around the world. As a doctor, you don't have any uh, like uh, obstacles to get a visa on any other country. But for uh, a training purpose, you need an Irish passport because of uh, different obstacles in our career. So... Yeah, it's, it's so frustrating. Uh, so, no, no, so, hang on a second. Uh, just, just um, Hannah, can I ask you just to come in? Hannah, uh, guys, you might, some of you have met Hannah before. Hannah is working on another podcast in terms of Rewind um, on the Tortoise Shack, but she's based in Beirut. Hannah, can I ask you for a comment on that? Because you did text me an interesting point there while we were listening to Mo. You know, it, it's funny because I was actually just kind of recently doing a bit of research on the Royal College of Surgeons because they obviously have a big international presence um, in Bahrain and Malaysia uh, and Dubai and I think there's kind of some kind of bigger questions about you know like how we're commercializing education and the extent to which you know international students are being brought into Ireland to receive you know medical degrees but not being given an option then to um, train in Ireland and again like some of the kind of ethical issues around that like you're willing to take you know substantial amounts of money from people but not give them the opportunity to train that again then intersects with a lot of the conditions in the HSE. Um, so, you know, there's there's lots of kind of consultant roles or training roles that Irish doctors don't want to do. So you're then only kind of allowing people to kind of do, you know, the less desirable ones, maybe in rural um, hospitals that people, um, that that people kind of, Irish people might not want to do. Um, so that's like one thing I've seen. And I mean, I think there was recent mitigation with the word CSI where they were, I think they were paying something like $5,000 to a recruit per student recruited um, from Saudi Arabia to come over to RCSI. So, you know, there's huge sums and there's a huge business in this. And, you know, there has to be some kind of ethical questions about, you know, how are we like, you know, how is the Irish education system fueling this? And is it fair to the students that are coming over? It's a really good point. Um, and I, I don't know if, if it's if it's fair of us to ask Mo to comment on that. But at the same time, I can understand why we'd have to we have to ask ourselves in the wider context as and I know this is I've seen I've seen actually, how do I put it? The uh the, the doctors who have who have come through the system but who are in the same situation as Mo, not just having to um go to other roles in other parts of the country, maybe, but also cover all of the other 
holidays and uh, the other the other t- things that uh, that the, the Irish doctors don't. So there is, you know, the, it does strike me as something that is is a bit strange. You know, uh, definitely um, something that it's it's important to keep an eye on. I just last thing for me, Modo is is it just can you let people know again how to fo- what's the what's the hashtag how to support you guys? Uh, it's a fast track citizenship. Uh, that's the hashtag we are using. And uh, can I comment on a couple of things uh, from the RCPI? Because uh, it takes, uh, I think this thing takes, uh, uh, like, uh, if if we see, like, what happened in the past, like, in 2014, uh, National Development Training Program and RCSI, they did a research about uh, the training uh, post in Ireland and non-training post in Ireland. And they found, like, 51.2% of the the doctors working in the surgical the surgery department they are non-training seats and they all are immigrant doctors so which is a huge number like like you can see like half of the doctors are non-training scheme and they are basically an immigrant doctors and like uh, it's been five years already and they haven't done anything for them which means like they're not going to do anything in the future as well that's very, that's very straightforward uh and the other thing is like in last uh like they have in their research they mentioned like from 2000 and 2010 uh registration of the foreign trained doctors has gone up from 13.4 percent to 33.4 percent and ireland high is second highest country in the eu which hired that number of doctors from outside ireland which is a big number and uh if they want to do a proper uh uh, want to do something properly for these healthcare workers and in, in eventually to do something for the Irish health system. They need to think about these things if they want to solve these things. Uh, the other thing uh, uh, Hannah mentioned about uh, like uh, in the rural areas and in Dublin, like it's very like tricky for, for doctors because uh, most of the subspecialities, especially for the pediatrics, they are all based in Dublin. I'm living in Dublin for the last three years. And every time I apply for uh, a job in Ireland, uh, in, in Dublin, like for a joint recruitment, they always offer us uh, uh, subspecialities like general deeds or emergency departments where no training doctor wants to go. And they always put us into those subspecialities. I want to do neonatology and I'm waiting for three years in, in Dublin just to just so that I can get into that uh, training scheme, uh, get into like non-training neonatology job because I want to do that and I want to do other subspecialties like neurology metabolic and uh, like endocrine but there's no jobs for us which means we're only filling the gaps where no other Irish doctor want to fill those gaps so that's it's quite unfair for us like it's very unfair treatment for us and I I just asked one because my understanding when it was explained to me last time as well, just that Irish doctors get priority over um, non-European doctors, but European doctors who trained anywhere else in Europe can also get priority um, in Ireland over non-European doctors. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, you often, oh, my internet might be unstable, but there's just a huge amount of competition um, that despite the fact you might have done your medical education in Ireland, you then have people who've trained elsewhere in Europe coming to Ireland to train um, and they take priority again over you. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, uh, Royal College, uh, they have set a criteria for a merit for training course and uh, they have 
seven different categories like Irish uh, graduates, uh, Irish citizen, and then uh, Irish uh, Irish citizen, EU graduates, and then EU citizen, Irish graduates. And in that category, we fall at the, at the base of it. Like we are at number seven, which means like if I'm successful, even if I top the interview and uh, my portfolio is amazing, but still I will not be offered the job because they will offer the job to the, to the EU and Irish candidates, which is very unfair. It it mean like it, it like I'm not motivated anymore for my job at all. Like, so it, it is extremely unfair, Mo. Yeah, it yeah. is extreme. And I'm sorry we have to move us on, but I'm going to move us yeah. on a little. Vicky was just going to ask you: There's going to be a, a high court challenge to well, the high court is going to look at the detaining people, um, in hotel quarantine. Um, what have you any thoughts on that? Oh, sorry, I was not prepared to speak on that. You you no. work away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a question that needs to be asked. Um, I think, it, you know, some groups have tried sort of taking pot shots at it, but somebody serious now is going to ask the question, is is hotel quarantine legal? And there are, there are elements of you can't lock somebody up if they haven't committed a crime. So it's nice that there's going well, to be some... That's, that's- that's not entirely true so if we take your european your like human rights okay like any right under the european convention of human rights can be there are certain grounds under which it can be infringed so the fact that you've committed a crime and are being detained for one of those is one but public health is another um danger to self is another so we can involuntarily detain people in mental health institutions um and we we can for public health reasons involuntarily detain people um that is uh, that's totally permitted under the ECHR. Now, we have a weird system in Ireland where you have coexisting, and I'm not an expert on this, and as I said, I wasn't prepared to comment, but um, we do have both constitutional rights and human rights, and the constitutional rights can operate slightly differently, but I'd be very surprised. Like We have always seen that, that public health is certainly a ground under which your rights can be infringed. So personally, I struggle to see any basis for such a challenge. Yeah, Thanks very much for not commenting on that one. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very successful don't comment. <laughs> H- Hannah, did you want to come in? Yeah, I would just add one thing. And again, um, I, I didn't look at this recently. I looked at this kind of a, a couple of months back, but um, in relation to the ECHR stuff, I think there's this, again, like what Vicky said, that, you know, you are allowed to um, detain people for public health reasons um, where they're risk to themselves. But I think what the what some of the European watchdogs have said is that they're really concerned with a lot of European countries bringing in these big regimes or these kind of suspensions of normal civil liberties without any timeline for when they're being removed. And they're not very specific. So, again, with the hotel quarantine, is there some indication like, you know, once it's at this rate, people will be free once the vaccination level is at this rate, you know, people like will remove you from the list. There's, it just seems like it's being brought in a way where people don't necessarily have a big sense of how long is this going to happen. And it's even stuff like the passport office thing where like, you know, people's passports aren't being brought in. Like people understand, okay, there could be temporary suspensions, but this kind of odd indefinite. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, 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 the indefinite nature of some of this stuff is the really worrying thing um, because it shows a kind of real lack of understanding of how important these rights are and how important it is to give people a, kind of an end site of what or, or kind of way out. It's unusual because we've seen so many comments lately, like, you know, 
uh, additional rights if you get your vaccines. Uh oh, you know, uh, additional this, you know, uh, just the language of that is very di- is very difficult to, for me to stomach. And we know when we started with the emergency uh, act that the that ICCL had to jump up and down saying, "Where's the sunset clause on this? Where's the expiry yeah. date? Where's this?" So, look, I I don't want to labor the point, but I do think that's important. And there are there are obviously going to be issues around conditions of detention. You know, we would say if somebody's being detained in a police station for more than a day, they need to have access to exercise facilities and this kind of thing. Um, you know, what's the food standards? All of these kind of things. What kind of space are people being given? Um, and, and there are, you know, if we start to look at it in strict human rights terms, there are real questions around conditions as well. I just have, um, I, want, I know, want to move it on, but it's actually, it's actually hard for me to, to, to segue to, but it's, it's important because you mentioned human rights and you mentioned some of the stuff that's gone on. I don't know if you, uh, if everybody saw the video of um, what happened with George and Kencho's family. Um, it was a harrowing watch. Uh, it was difficult to 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 look at, um, and it's the relationship with the police seemed very damaged, badly damaged. Um, like we've covered this extensively on police with with friends of George and and people who know the family. Ejiro came on and spoke powerfully about you know what it means in the in in the African Irish community and things like that. But when you see it now, a few months later, it was it was difficult to watch. Um, Vicky, did you have a comment on this? Many. Um, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, firstly, obviously, seeing his mother treated like that is um, both difficult and worrying and upsetting. Um, and there's a lot of questions around it. Um, obviously, we weren't there, maybe haven't seen the full footage. You know, it may have been selective. Um, but that is really, really worrying. And for me, it brings to mind some of what we would have discussed with the Wheelock family, where they felt like um, the police were almost targeting them in the aftermath of Terence's death. Um, and I think... There's a lot. I, I've had students saying that to me already, that it's, it reminds them of that and wondering, is that what's going on? So I think that's one thing. And then there's the the broader relationship of the black community with the police at the moment and, and what's being, you know, I think they deserve really tangible efforts at not just reconciling, but improving those relationships and building trust and respect. And, you know, this isn't, it's not a time for the police to be seen to be authoritarian in any way. It's a time for them to be seen to be, you know, engaging and respectful. Um, And I think there's also a further question around um, GSOC and all of this. And, you know, a lot of tension will stem from the lack of visible accountability or explanation, at least. And, you know, there's problems with that. Like, I don't think we're going to see anything from GSOC for another few months. And I think we really need to question why is that the case? Why does it take so long to investigate what happened in the space of one hour, really? Um, why does that take so long? And, and I really don't see any justifiable reason for that taking so long. But even when we do get an answer from GSOC, it'll be really short. Um, it won't be a full report. It will be a letter with conclusions written to the family um, uh, and it, it won't satisfy anything. And I can say that right now, things are going to get worse whenever that report is released because um, it will not satisfy the demands currently being made. Um, and that's in large part because GSOC isn't set up 
that way, it will look at, did the officer breach any regulations? It will not answer questions about systemic racism in Angarda Shiakona and whether that could have played a part in that shooting, which but, is but, what we know the families want to hear. Yeah, but you've you've there's already been reports into um, Angarda Shiakona around racism in the force and they found that there it is systemic mm-hmm. and it is yeah. in, in the force. So they know they don't need a report to tell them that when they've already commissioned one and got it, you know? Um, no, but the family wants to know. Yeah, I, oh, racism abs- a factor. Absolutely, I, I. Yeah. Whether it be, I, I, that's, I suppose what I'm saying to you is, as, <laughs> where are we now compared to when they got the report? Is what I mean, and what does this signal send? Because Ireland has moved on as, as, a, as a country in terms of, you know, there, there's now, there's now more non-national, uh, first-time generation, younger people for of people of color, people of different ethnicities. I mean, we only have to see the crap with the with the Green Party who say, no, oh, we're not going to get rid of Hazel Chew as the chair. And you're going, well, at some point, someone should have pulled them aside and said, look, she's done nothing wrong. And this is going to look terrible that you're going after a woman uh, of a, an ethnic minority to, to, to stand aside. Just even the optics. We don't ask ourselves. I, like, we- I mean, it took a man 10 years to challenge the system to be allowed to enter the guards wearing Sikh headgear. Yeah. 10 years he was challenging it. You know, and that's only in the last. I think that was that was in late January. He was yeah, it was in the, told it was he fr- could admit it was made. Uh, it was all over the papers. Our first uh, uh, again to go back to Mo's point. It was a big. It was a big photo op after him taking years to do it. Um, yeah, the, ten pat- years they resisted that, but, but we patted ourselves on the back when it was done. Is my point? Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on. Just gonna ask opinions, uh, Tony. Where where's your opinion on the the royal funeral? Are you flying over? Are you looking for a flight? Uh, do you expect to be there waving the Union Jack? No, I have I have zero interest. I've not no. I'm, I, I'm sorry for his family. That's about as far as I can go on this. Um, at the same time, I have I have zero interest. I I I do think it was unusual seeing some of these crazy dystopian videos people driving into london with with these huge billboards with his face displayed um and like it's a bit it's a bit kind of uh well, philip boucher reminded us of their use rte used to have an actual uh panic button they used to press if somebody of stature died where there was somber music on all channels and you know this went on for days ireland stopped that but it seems to be going on in the uk do you think it's a good idea or is it is it something that should be left in the past? Monarchy should be left in the past, but it, there's also um, there's an element of that. It's I hate to say it, but I saw people within the BBC who I've spoken to who said this might be a dry run for if something happens, the inevitable happens. Yes. And that's that was kind of. <laughs> yeah, Christ. that was the That was the that was the <laughs> ca- callous way it was looked upon that they, they could use this as a way of um, of seeing how they how how quickly they could respond. And I was like, oh, oh Christ, like the way that to- you're you're a good royalist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> from Cork, like I mean, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, well, no, from, being from no. Queenstown and that, you can you can give us a bit of an I'm insight. Not from Cove. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think I think the thing that's interesting in watching how this plays out and is handled is, uh, you know, it's happening at a time when you really have a nation that is already in mourning. Right. Like national mourning has now been declared, apparently. But 
between, I mean, for some people, they were already mourning because of Brexit and then COVID. I mean, the loss and the grief and the trauma that that has caused, that that very few people are getting an opportunity to express, you know, nobody's really getting to grieve in any proper healing way at the moment. Um, and I'm just interested, I suppose, to see, like, w- what kind of reaction you can get from people. Um, I know even, you know, I lived in the UK for a long time and any friends, I mean, none of my friends would be royalists, but um, it's all very muted, I think, at the moment. I know the media are very engaged with it, but um, yeah, it's just, it, it is, it's different, right, because of the context. Hannah. You're on mute. <laughs> what I would love to know is how people would respond if the crown hadn't been playing on Netflix. Like <laughs> how many people would actually do articles or tweet about um, Prince Philip if that hadn't happened. Um, again, not a royalist. I have a lot of friends in London who actually probably would kind of, when I lived in London, who probably would have kind of supported the royal family. Um, you know, I think it's kind of one of those things in Ireland, like it's a bit like, you know, well, I, 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 actually, it's more about avoiding kind of reading. Sorry, go on. Can I pop in there? Because like Jana has mentioned in the chat, the death yeah. of Nikki Graham. And honestly, I found myself really upset about this last night. I mean, you know, it, it, I was never that big into Big Brother, but like I remember her super bubbly and expressive, like how emotional she was and how expressive she was. And it's just, it's, I found it so sad thinking about what COVID has done to people that are trying to manage certain illnesses and and the level of despair that someone has to reach to die from an illness like that like it's really heartbreaking and it's really upsetting and like I volunteer on a um a depression phone line and like I see it every week you know I'll do my shift this evening and it's people are struggling so much at the moment and that that consequence like for me and I'd agree with Jana that's like a much bigger in terms of like news stories that's a much more significant death for me um to see that that the way that COVID is affecting people with mental illness and there's going to have to be a reckoning or there's going to have to be some space after this for national grieving people often had the opportunity and I think it's a huge vacuum that's there massive um Tony no I just look I want to echo what's been said there some fantastic points in the chat as usual as i was talking to emma earlier and i said our, our our contributors are always always smarter than the than the people uh or the, the people in the audience are smarter than the contributors except vicky um uh, and <laughs> hannah now but but nonetheless martin you know us two ticks but but i will say it was pointed out again this week that yet again um spending on eating disorders in ireland's funding has been cut for another year in a row budgets have been slashed and we're, we're really struggling in those departments it's really, really unacceptable. And as we come out into, you know, a new world where we've all been vaccinated and we get back to some sort of normal, it's not going to actually, uh, it's not going to add anything if we if we don't reckon with it. Um, I think we might leave it there in terms of t- the, the show. Martin, do you have anything else you want to Yeah, cover? just to remind everybody, look, the tortoise shack keeps going on the goodwill of patrons. So and we know you're all patrons and you're all very welcome. And we like talking to you on a Sunday morning. But tell your mates and get them to come along and we'll have this chat on a Sunday morning with even more people. <laughs>